Let me tell you a story, podcast number 58. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a true how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to our first 2017 Let Me Tell You a Story podcast. We'll leave Christmas stories behind and return to reading chapters from Treasure Island and Winds of Wyoming. If we have time, we'll throw in some New Year quotes and a kid chuckle or two. This year, we're also going to read random excerpts from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal, which we think you'll enjoy. But before we get going, we thought we'd give you an idea of what we've been up to lately and any plans we might have for this new year. In case you haven't heard, southeastern Idaho's entrance into 2017 included several days of record snowfall, plus crispy cold temperatures. Steve has spent many hours shoveling the white stuff so we can get out of our driveway. Has that refreshing activity in near-zero temperatures triggered any new poem ideas for you? Hmm. How to burn off fat. That's that's all? <laughs> okay. Are you working on anything else? I think the shovel's still in my hand. It's been been there so much. Um, I think this year I'd like to get the, uh, the poems published. Work on that one. So in case you don't know, Steve has been posting oh, mostly limericks, right, on uh, Facebook. So he's got quite a collection of poems and just needs to get them compiled together, so especially those who aren't on Facebook, (laughs) can read them all at once. For myself, as I've mentioned before, I'm working on a prequel for the Kate Nielsen series. I thought I was done, but then I realized the story was not complete. So I'm in the midst of research trying to learn a bit more about horses. Claudia, our friend who works with horses, has been a huge help. Also, I met with my critique group today, and they had great ideas and input, as always. My hope is to publish Winds of Hope in early spring. I'm also taking a break from editing for a couple months to concentrate on a social media marketing class, which I expect will strain my brain a bit, but it should be worth the effort. So that's my news. I'll begin our readings with the last half of Chapter 13 in Winds of Wyoming. Mike dropped the tailgate for Tramp. The dog hopped up into the bed of the truck, put his paws on the side, and licked Kate's cheek. She scratched his neck. Poor puppy. He got kicked out because of me. He'll be fine. Mike latched the tailgate and opened the passenger door. He slid across the seat. If Tramp rode in the cab, he'd want to sit on your lap and hang his head out the window. Last I knew, he weighed around 75 pounds. She climbed inside and pulled the door shut. Mike started the engine. Where were we? I think we were trying to decide which one of us is engaged. Oh, yeah. Where did you get the idea I'm engaged? 
I ran into Tara Hughes at the grocery store, Kate said. She told me the two of you are planning to get married. Kate gave him a sideways glance. She also told me to keep my distance from you. She'd be furious if she saw us in this truck together. Mike clenched his teeth, fearing unchristian words would erupt. He blew out a breath. I am not and never have been engaged to Tara Hughes. Well, she seems convinced. A truck drew even with them to pass. Idiot. Tara? Kate asked. No, yes. No, I mean this driver who's trying to pass on a hill and a curve. He slowed to give the other driver room to steer the car back into the correct lane. I dated Hughes for a short time in high school, but that's all it took. She's been on my case ever since, even when I was in college. She was always mailing me stupid letters or showing up at my dorm. He downshifted to power up the long hill. I never once, not once, he pounded the dashboard, not once did I even mention marriage to her. He released an exasperated sigh and looked at Kate. I hope you believe me, because that's the truth. She touched his arm. I believe you. You two never seemed like a good match to me, but I didn't want to flat out ask you about your relationship with her. Then I saw her with someone else, which didn't make sense. He felt a happy lift in his stomach. And for the record, Kate lifted her eyebrows. I'm not engaged either. He grinned. Good. Glad we got that straightened out. So now, will you go riding with me? I'd love to. If you weren't helping with the trail ride, I'd ask you to go this afternoon. How about Friday evening? I grab some grub and we'll have a campfire on the canyon rim. That sounds wonderful, Kate said, if we can get away. We can do it. I'm the boss, remember? Which means you'll feel guilty every moment we're gone. Nope. I plan to forget the WP and have a good time. Clint has a trail ride under control, and Mom has a cowboy poet scheduled to entertain the guests afterward. He studied Kate's face as she watched a herd of elk race across the hillside, her hair floating on the breeze from the open window. Friday couldn't come soon enough in his book. She turned to him. He looked away, embarrassed to be caught staring, and checked Tramp in the mirror. As usual, the big dog clung to the side, his tongue hanging out and his golden fur ruffling in the wind. Kate cocked her head. What's that noise? What noise? She leaned out the open window. Sounds like something's wrong with your tires or your wheels. He slowed the pickup. You mean that gritty sound? Uh-huh. That's the sound of studded snow tires on dry pavement. A lot of folks around here run studs in the winter, but my dad kept them on all year long. He was convinced they got old blue places regular tires couldn't go. I'm not sure what I'll do when these wear out. I'll have to remember that, Kate said, the next time I buy tires. Depends where you live. Studs are legal year-round in Wyoming, but that's not the case in most states. He jerked the wheel to avoid a jackrabbit that chose that moment to bound across the highway. Interesting. She leaned her elbow on the seat back. Have you heard anything from the sheriff about the dead buffalo? No, not a word. Do you have any ideas? Nope, nothing adds up. I'm sorry to hear that, Kate said. Me too. I just hope it doesn't happen again. But it could. Mike raised an eyebrow. I was in the lobby yesterday when Minnie and Mamie came in. Remember them? 
How could I forget those two? Dad always said there are no twins on the face of the earth as unique as the Curtis pair. Whether the women were throwing horseshoes or sitting outside their cabin, everyone within a hundred yards was well aware of their presence. Kate leaned toward Mike. I heard one of them tell your mom they planned to hunt bison this summer. Did you know about that? He nodded. Mom told me. Where did you get the idea they can shoot your buffalo? Probably from our email newsletters or our latest brochure. He glanced in the mirror again. We decided to add bison hunts to our activity list this year to attract hunters. But I'd never have guessed the twins might be interested. What are they? 75? 80? They probably can't even hold a gun up long enough to get off a decent shot. Kate gaped at him. Are you saying people will walk into a pasture full of defenseless animals and kill them while they're peacefully grazing for no reason other than pleasure? Not just pleasure, Mike said. Their meat sells for a premium. Their horns and hides are worth quite a bit, and why don't you just sell them to the slaughterhouse? The poor things won't have a chance to run and hide or protect themselves from your so-called hunters. She raised her hands. I thought you loved your herd. Mike frowned. I don't love them the way I love my dog. They're a marketable product, every inch of their body. The guests will pay us for the privilege of shooting bison. His voice rose. The privilege. This is a unique opportunity for hunters. In the 1800s, bison roamed the west in huge herds that darkened the prairies as far as one could see. But not anymore. He stabbed the air with his forefinger. In addition to the hunt, our patrons will pay us to deliver the carcasses to a butcher, to ship the meat wherever they ask, to take the hide or the head or the horns to a taxidermist for them, and on and on. This could be very profitable for the ranch. He dropped his hand onto the steering wheel. You should understand, with your marketing degree. She narrowed her eyes. So, it's all about money. He recoiled as if he'd been slapped. Other than love for the land, that's what all ranching is about. This is the way we make our living. Others may drive a truck or deliver mail or teach school, but we own and run a ranch. Hearing no response, Mike was trying to think of a way to make amends for his outburst when Kay spoke again, her voice low. Are you planning to let someone shoot Trudy when she's grown? I shouldn't have let you name her. Now you're emotionally attached. She looked away. He sighed. Kate had lost her family and her dog. Returning the calf to the herd wouldn't be easy. To be honest, I'm not any happier about the hunts than you are. Can we talk about something else? She nodded. So, what's your favorite thing about Wyoming so far? After a moment, Kate came to life again. Everything. I like everything about Wyoming. She waved her arm out the window. The wildflowers, the mountains, the animals, including your bison, and the traffic. Traffic? She pointed at the long charcoal strip of asphalt ahead of them. We're the only ones on the road right now. Even in the middle of major snowstorms, that doesn't happen in Pittsburgh. People are everywhere, all the time. He grunted. I couldn't live that way. She grinned. I hope you never have to. Your ranch is a wonderful, beautiful Shangri-La. Her smile made his heart lurch and beat faster. Kate angled her head to peer through the front window. That's a really big bird. Is it an eagle? He looked out his window. You're right. It's a bald eagle. I've heard there's a nest on that mountain. He pointed toward a tall peak. We could hike up there to look for it sometime, if you'd like. Could we really get close to its nest? Kate's excitement routed all thoughts of bison hunts from his brain.
We might get close enough to see the eaglets with binoculars. He paused. Did you change your mind about riding with me on Friday? No. Why would I? You didn't seem too happy about buffalo hunts. The Whispering Pines is your ranch, Kate said. Not mine. I respect you and your mom and the decisions you make. Back to Treasure Island. It's going to be chapter 15. I'll read a little bit from the end of 14. All this while, as I say, I was still running, and without taking any notice, I had drawn near to the foot of the hill, the little hill with the two peaks, and had got into a part of the island where the live oaks grew more widely apart and seemed more like the forest trees in their bearing and dimensions. Mingled with these were a few scattered pines, some fifty, some nearer seventy feet high. The air, too, smelt more freshly than down beside the marsh, and here a fresh alarm brought me to a standstill with a thumping heart. Chapter 15 The Man of the Island From the side of the hill, which was here steep and stony, a spout of gravel was dislodged and fell rattling and bounding through the trees. My eyes turned instinctively in that direction, and I saw a figure leap with great rapidity behind the trunk of a pine. What it was, whether bear or man or monkey, I could in no wise tell. It seemed dark and shaggy, more I knew not, but the terror of this new apparition brought me to a stand. I was now, it seemed, cut off upon both sides, behind me the murderers, before me this lurking nondescript, and immediately I began to prefer the dangers that I knew to those I knew not. Silver himself appeared in less terrible in contrast with this creature of the woods, and I turned on my heel and, looking sharply behind me over my shoulder, began to retrace my steps in the direction of the boats. Instantly the figure reappeared, and making a wide circuit began to head me off. I was tired at any rate, but had I been as fresh as when I rose... I could see it was in vain for me to contend in speed with such an adversary. From trunk to trunk the creature flitted like a deer, running manlike on two legs, but unlike any man that I had ever seen, stooping almost double as it ran. Yet a man it was, I could no longer be in doubt about that. I began to recall what I had heard of cannibals. I was within an ace of calling for help, but the mere fact that he was a man, however wild, had somewhat reassured me, and my fear of silver began to revive in proportion. I stood still, therefore, and cast about for some method of escape, and as I was so thinking, the recollection of my pistol flashed into my mind. As soon as I remembered I was not defenseless, courage glowed again in my heart, and I set my face resolutely for this man of the island and walked briskly towards him. He was concealed by this time behind another tree trunk, but he must have been watching me closely, for as soon as I began to move in his direction, he reappeared and took a step to meet me. Then he hesitated, drew back, came forward again, and at last, to my wonder and confusion, threw himself on his knees and held out his clasped hands in supplication. At that, I once more stopped. Who are you? I asked. Ben Gunn, he answered and his voice sounded hoarse and awkward, like a rusty lock. I'm poor Ben Gunn, I am, and I haven't spoke with a Christian these three years. 
I could see now that he was a white man like myself and that his features were even pleasing. His skin, wherever it was exposed, was burnt by the sun. Even his lips were black, and his fair eyes looked quite startling in so dark a face. Of all the beggar men that I had seen or fancied, he was the chief for raggedness. He was clothed with tatters of old ship's canvas and old sea cloth, and this extraordinary patchwork was all held together by a system of the most various and incongruous fastenings, brass buttons, bits of stick, and loops of terry gaskin. About his waist he wore an old brass-buckled leather belt, which was the one thing solid in his whole accoutrement. Three years, I cried. Were you shipwrecked? Nay, mate, said he, marooned. I had heard the word, and I knew it stood for a horrible kind of punishment common enough among the buccaneers, in which the offender is put ashore with a little powder and shot, and left behind on some desolate and distant island. Maroon three years are gone, he continued, and lived on goats since then, and berries and oysters. Wherever a man is, says I, a man can do for himself. But, mate, my heart is sore for Christian diet. You mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about you now, no? Well, many's the long night I've dreamed of cheese, toasted mostly, and woke up again, and here I were. If ever I can get aboard again, said I, you shall have cheese by the stone. All this time he had been feeling the stuff of my jacket, smoothing my hands, looking at my boots, and generally, in the intervals of his speech, showing a childish pleasure in the presence of a fellow creature. But at my last words he perked up into a kind of startled slyness. If ever you can get aboard again, says you, he repeated. Why now? Who's to hinder you? Not you, I know, was my reply. And right you was, he cried. Now you, what do you call yourself, mate? Jim, I told him. Jim, Jim, says he, quite pleased, apparently. Well now, Jim, I've lived that rough as you'd be ashamed to hear of. Now, for instance, you wouldn't think I had had a pious mother to look at me, he asked. Why, no, not in particular, I answered. Ah, well, said he, but I had remarkable pious, and I was a civil pious boy and could rattle off my catechism that fast, as you couldn't tell one word from another. And here's what it come to, Jim, and it begun with Chuck Farthen on the blessed gravestones. That's what it begun with, but it went further than that, and so my mother told me, and predict the whole she did, the pious woman. But it were providence that put me here. I've thought it all out in this here lonely island, and I'm back on piety. You don't catch me tasting rum so much, but just a thimbleful for luck, of course, the first chance I have. I'm bound I'll be good, and I see the way to. And Jim, looking all around him and lowering his voice to a whisper, I'm rich. I now felt sure that the poor fellow had gone crazy in his solitude, and I suppose I must have shown the feeling in my face, for he repeated the statement hotly. Rich, rich, I says, and I'll tell you what, I'll make a man of you, Jim. Ah, Jim, you'll bless your stars, you will. You was the first that found me. And at this there came suddenly a lowering shadow over his face, 
and he tightened his grasp upon my hand and raised a forefinger threateningly before my eyes. Now, Jim, you tell me true. That ain't Flit's ship, he asked. At this I had a happy inspiration. I began to believe that I had found an ally, and I answered him at once, It's not Flint's ship, and Flint is dead. But I'll tell you true, as you ask me, there are some of Flint's hands aboard. Worse luck for the rest of us. Not a man with one leg? He gasped. Silver? I asked. Ah, Silver, says he. That were his name. He's the cook and the ringleader, too. He was still holding me by the wrist, and at that he gave it quite a ring. If you was sent by Long John, he said, I'm as good as pork, and I know it. But where was you, do you suppose? I had made my mind up in a moment, and by way of answer told him the whole story of our voyage and the predicament in which we found ourselves. He heard me with the keenest interest, and when I had done, he patted me on the head. You're a good lad, Jim, he said, and you're all in a clove hitch, ain't you? Well, you just put your trust in Ben Gunn. Ben Gunn's the man to do it. Would you think it likely now that your squire would prove a liberal-minded one in case of help, him being in a clove hitch, as you remarked? I told him the squire was the most liberal of men. Aye, but you see, returned Ben Gunn, I didn't mean giving me a gate to keep and a suit of livery clothes and such. That's not my mark, Jim. What I mean is, would he be likely to come down to the tune of, say, one thousand pounds out of money that's as good as a man's own already? I am sure he would, said I. As it was, all hands were to share. And a passage home, he added, with a look of great shrewdness. Why, I cried, the squire's a gentleman, and besides... If we got rid of the others, we should want you to help work the vessel home. Ah, said he, so you would. And he seemed very much relieved. Now I'll tell you what, he went on. So much I'll tell you, and no more. I were in Flint's ship when he buried the treasure. He and six along, six strong seamen. They were ashore nigh on a week, and us standing off and on in the old walrus. One fine day, up went the signal, and here come Flint by himself in a little boat, and his head done up in a blue scarf. The sun was getting up, and mortal white he looked about the cutwater. But there he was, you mind, and the six all dead, dead and buried. How he done it? Not a man aboard us could make out. It was battle, murder, and sudden death, leastways. Him against six. Billy Bones was the mate. Long John, he was quartermaster. And they asked him where the treasure was. Ah, says he, you can go ashore if you like and stay, he says. But as for the ship, she'll beat up for more by thunder. That's what he said. Well, I was in another ship three years back, and we sighted this island. Boys, said I, here's Flint's treasure. Let's land and find it. The captain was displeased at that. But my messmates were all of a mind and landed. Twelve days they looked for it, and every day they had the worst word for me, until one fine morning all hands went aboard. As for you, Benjamin Gunn, says they, 
Here's a musket, they says, and a spade and a pickaxe. You can stay here and find Flint's money for yourself, they says. Well, Jim, three years have I been here, and not a bite of Christian diet from that day to this. But now you look here. Look at me. Do I look like a man before the mast? No, says you. Nor I weren't, neither, I says. And with that he winked and pinched me hard. Just you mentioned them words to your squire, Jim, he went on. Nor he weren't neither, that's the words. Three years he were the man of this island, light and dark, fair and rain, and sometimes he would, maybe, think upon a prayer, says you, and sometimes he would, maybe, think of his old mother, so be as she's alive, you'll say. But the most part of Gunn's time, this is what you'll say, the most part of his time was took up with another matter, and then you'll give him a nip, like I do. And he pinched me again in the most confidential manner. Then, he continued, then you'll up and you'll say this. Gun is a good man, you'll say. And he puts a precious sight more confidence, a precious sight, mind that, in a gentleman born than in these gentlemen of fortune, having been one himself. Well, I said, I don't understand one word that you've been saying. But that's neither here nor there, for how am I to get on board? Ah, said he, that's the hitch for sure. Well, there's my boat that I made with my own two hands. I keep her under the white rock. If the worst come to the worst, we might try that after dark. Hi, he broke out. What's that? For just then, although the sun had still an hour or two to run, all the echoes of the island awoke and bellowed to the thunder of a cannon. They have begun to fight, I cried. Follow me. And I began to run towards the anchorage. My terror is all forgotten while close at my side the marooned man in his goatskins trotted easily and lightly. Left, left, says he. Keep to your left hand, mate Jim, under the trees with you. Theirs will I killed my first goat. They don't come down here now. They're all mastheaded on them mountings for the fear of Benjamin Gunn. Ah, and there is the cemetery. Cemetery, he must have meant. You see the mounds? I come here and prayed, nows and thens, when I thought maybe a Sunday would be about due. It weren't quite a chapel, but it seemed more solemn-like. And then, says you, Ben Gunn was short-handed. No chaplain, nor so much as a Bible and a flag, you says. So he kept talking as I ran, neither expecting nor receiving any answer. The cannon shot was followed after a considerable interval by a volley of small arms. Another pause, and then, not a quarter of a mile in front of me, I beheld the Union Jack flutter in the air above a wood. As I said, we're going to be reading excerpts from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal. And I'm going to begin with day two in the big house. This is a work camp, so the guys have to work or take classes. The classes offered are GED and ABE. Uh, they learn to be a custodian or a landscaper. They have parenting classes, substance abuse classes, and so on. My job is subsidized by canteen funds, the profit from the money the inmates spend on pop, candy, toiletries, etc. 
Ours is a minimum security prison and has men who are serving from six months to three years. The staff is trying to prepare them for the outside, social skills and all. The Department of Corrections has decided to cut the inmates' wages. Right now, they make 50 cents to a couple dollars a day, depending on the job. They will all make 60 cents a day, no matter what the job is, after the pay cut. So the administration figures there'll be problems when the men find that out. But it isn't like the guys don't know the pay change is coming. I heard that when the facility was designated as non-smoking, the inmates rioted. Wow, I can't imagine making those guys all quit smoking at the same time. The staff goes off grounds to smoke, if and when they can. So you see various staff members eating lots of sunflower seeds. I was given a list of ARs to read. Those are administrative rules. Because I won't be going to basic training until June and I haven't had self-defense training yet, I must have minimal contact with inmates. I was given a radio and keys and told to read those rules and try to get with all the people on a list they gave me for orientation in different areas. I spent a few hours today with a female in the control center. That is like a dispatch center in a police department, only much more detailed. She was cool. We talked a lot about how to get along, yet be tough with the guys, who are often like junior high kids. I also talked to a guy in electronics who told me the same thing everyone says. These are not your friends. They don't care about you except for what they can get out of you. Then another guy who is the safety guy told me what diseases were of concern, and the fact that each population, blacks, Hispanics, and whites, will assign certain people to find out about me so they can figure out how to play me. I am most concerned about that, coming from the outside and being too accommodating sometimes. I don't want to be taken advantage of. I won't be in the library, at least not by myself, for a while. I have to hang out in my office and or be with the other librarian. I was more at ease on day two, although some people have given me more things to consider about the inmates. The more knowledge, the better prepared, I hope. Anyway, I think this is going to be a very interesting job. Training. I am at the training center to train for four weeks with the Department of Corrections. They tell me we have the best corrections in the nation. I just got out of a class on incommunicable diseases. Those of us who come from any distance are staying at an abbey. It is a beautiful place, and the rooms are typical of dorm-type rooms, with two beds, but we don't have to share due to the small class size. The weather is beautiful, and the downtown area has tons of old, beautiful houses, which I love. I will be here during the week, go home on Friday nights, and come back on Sunday nights until I graduate. I will be doing some prison library tours while here also. Boy, am I glad to be working in a level one prison. The others sound scary. Training grounds. The abbey, which has Benedictine monks and tiny Mexican nuns living there, also has our DOC training center on the grounds. When all the monks and nuns have passed away or have moved to nursing homes, the monastery will close. I went to the museum in the basement today, which has mostly Indian artifacts. I like the headdresses and beaded stuff the most. One gal staying in the quarters is a nurse. Very interesting gal. The other female works at a reintegration center in the city. They help people get jobs after they're paroled. 
She says, believe it or not, everyone will hire former inmates. One lady in our class is in charge of a dog training program. They take dogs of all types into prisons for inmates to train. Most are from animal shelters. The dogs live with the inmates for a couple months and are trained, and then they're adopted by outsiders. Some of the dogs are sent to prison by their owners to be trained. As an aside, this is Becky speaking, I think this is real helpful for those of you who are dog owners to know that you can send your dog to prison. You know, the next time it chews on your chair leg or whatever, you can just say, cut it out, or I'm sending you to prison. So back to uh, Jeannie's story, one last paragraph. The state director of prisons came today to talk to us. My old library boss would have been proud because I asked, how important do you think prison libraries are? He said, very important. It is a matter of security. Reading keeps them from doing other things they shouldn't, like getting into mischief. Books are better than watching TV. Amen to that. Here are some quotes having to do with the new year or resolutions. From Unknown, Dear God, my prayer for this year is a fat bank account and a thin body. Please don't mix these up like you did last year. (laughs) From Jonathan Edwards, Resolution 1, I will live for God. Resolution 2, if no one else does, I still will. Here's one from Emerson. Write it on your heart that every day is the best day in the year. And from Helen Keller, your success and happiness lies in you. Resolve to keep happy, and your joy and you shall form an invincible host against difficulties. We haven't done kid chuckles for a while, so here are a few fun ones. At this time, um, our kids were ages one, four, and six. Brady, one, Toby, four, and Elisa, six. And about that time, uh, she was probably six and a half, she lost her second front tooth. And Toby said, We call everybody to come here for the tooth fair because Elisa can't sing because her teeth are falling out. He told me I had two things to do. Make a spinach cake and fix lots and lots of presents for Elisa. She can't open the presents until Toby and Steve play the banjo. He's also planning a tooth parade to be held at 7 (laughs) o'clock. Later, he wanted to have a conversation with his baby brother. After a baby dedication on Sunday, Elisa whispered, I need to teach Brady about Jesus. And Toby said, I'm glad God made you my mom. Elisa had her first recital last night, and I'm not sure if that was piano or violin, but it was her first experience, and she said, her tummy was scared, but she played nicely without any errors. Uh, Another day, she told me, I thought about you all day, Mom. How sweet of her, I thought. Then she added, I thought about how you never say thank you, 
which which um, put me in my place, I guess. <laughs> Toby was impressed that I could move the kitchen table to mop the floor. Are you strong, Mom? he asked. I answered, yes, strong enough to move a table, but not to pull a car. He declared, well, you should use a chain for that. He couldn't understand why he couldn't pull his turtleneck shirt over his head. But I have my muscles on, he said. And shortly after breakfast, Toby said, my silly old tummy is hungry again. Brady wanted a toy at the table, and Toby said, I've told him many times he can't have it. Elisa, pointing at our dog, said, Tasha looks worried. I asked, What do you think she's worried about? She said, Can I feed her? And one last one. The morning after I got a new perm in my hair, Toby asked, did you sleep in your hair, Mom? That's going to end this podcast. Happy New Year. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.